Let us pray for illumination before today's scripture. Gracious God, blessed Trinity, you speak your community of love with people across the ages and around the world. Speak to us by that same spirit which binds us together so your word may enliven us to trust and follow you. Amen. Galatians 3, chapters 13 through 29. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I give an example from daily life. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one adds to it or annuls it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, as of many, but says, and to your offspring, that is, to one person who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance comes from the law, it no longer comes from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring would come to whom the promise had been made, and it was ordained through the angels by a mediator. Now a mediator involves more than one party, but God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith has come. We are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer a Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male in Christ. Then you are Abraham. All of you are one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The word of the Lord. So I, uh, I wrote a very short sermon this week, <laughs> and uh, I really feel like it'd be a missed opportunity if we didn't invite Keisha and Imani to, to come up just for a minute, just to share, just so you, for those of you who don't know them, could, could meet them really briefly, and then there's going to be more information downstairs. And uh, I'd love for as many of you as possible to come. But uh, would you mind coming up just for a minute, <laughs> Keisha and Imani? I had the opportunity with uh, several other Genevans to be at their vision dinner uh, last winter. And it was just a, a blessing to be there. 
and to hear about what they're uh, doing in Wisconsin and on campus. And I think for those who, you know, I'd like to ask you three questions. Okay. And I, these are going to be easy. You haven't heard these before, but I know you can answer them. <laughs> um, and and I, the first one is, I feel like the two of you are probably in the best position to tell all of us about the Ministry of Impact and what Impact is about. Uh, and could you, for, you know, especially for some of us here who, who haven't heard about Impact before, could you just give us like a, a, a brief description of what, what is Impact? Oh, that was an easy question. <laughs> I have to do this all the time. <laughs> um, so the Impact Movement equips black students to be disciples of Jesus Christ in every aspect of their life. And so what that really means is that we really desire to see students be a reflection of Christ uh, wherever they go, in their jobs, in their professions, on campus, um, and inside the church. And so um, one of the things that I think that makes a distinct, distinct, distinctor of impact is the fact that we're a three-para organization. We, I don't know if you heard the term parachurch organization, where it's like it's a, or it's a ministry outside of the church. And so like any other campus ministry, most campus ministries, or big, the big ones, um, they're parachurch ministries where you seek to help people, introduce people to Jesus and help them grow in their faith. But we're also a para-school ministry where we desire to see 100% of our students graduate. Um, in Wisconsin, well, nationwide, only 42% of black students that enter the university actually graduate. In Wisconsin, it's worse, it's 38. And so, we, have, we believe that if the Lord called us to reach them on campus, then, and then he said, are able to complete their, their undergraduate career, careers so that they can be launched into their God-given vocations. But it will also pair community and this desire to, to create a strong, life-giving community amongst black students, but also their community on campus, as well as them serving the community outside of campus and outside of the church. Um, and so, it was longer than I expected, but yes, that's what the impact is. <laughs> that's great. So, Keisha, you're overseeing now the work of impact all in all of Wisconsin, correct? Mm -hmm. And Imani, you're the you're the campus leader for the UW Madison, right? I wonder if Imani, if you could tell us what's one thing from this past year uh, that left you encouraged. I was just telling Keisha that I couldn't wait to share this. <laughs> um, when me and Keisha met, her desire was to see uh, UW-Madison um, grow, um, our impact chapter grow. And I was just telling her, I cannot wait to share with people that we've grown from one student leader to five student leaders. Um, and yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and from having between seven to eight students consistently come first semester to ending the year out, with 16 um, students consistently coming. And so just to know that um, Keisha trusted me with her baby because she graduated from UW-Madison, but most importantly, God saw fit, you know, for us to do this work together. And it's actually growing, has left me so encouraged and believe in God to continue to grow in this upcoming school year. All right, yeah. And I, I guess this could be for either of you or both. Like, um, uh, everyone can go downstairs and learn more after the service, but what's one thing that you think you'd ask for prayer for that, that we could be lifting up in prayer as you look ahead to next year? I have earned a sabbatical, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>
And so I will be gone all fall semester. And this is, well, one, for me, because uh, I'm scared to leave. <laughs> um, uh, so prayer for me, but also prayer for the impact volunteers. And the, Imani's the only staff person. And then we're all, rest of us, rest of the campus is, is ran, um, the state is ran by volunteers. And so just prayer for them as they seek to lead and serve students while I'm gone. Um, I'm sure they'll do an amazing job, but I, all of them are super nervous. Um, and so that, that God reminds them that they are equipped and they can do it, but that, that kind of grows their um, courage and excitement um, to know that they can do it without me. Um, but also for those, so, so I think because they're probably nervous too. They're like, Keisha gonna be gone, what we gonna do? <laughs> so, so I think that's a, big, that's a big one for me. Well, I would like to second what Keisha said, so I won't go too much into that, but um, as we were planning, we had a retreat um, where we were just planning for the year and a word that really just stuck out to us that um, we're believing God for, for our students um, for this upcoming year and forevermore is holiness. We really want to see our students just truly transformed by God um, and their relationship with him, which overflows um, into the way um, that they live their lives. So yes, let's continue to pray um, for their growth and their relationship with Christ as well. Yeah. Wonderful, well, well, we will be praying. Let me pray now uh, for, for your ministry. Father, we are so grateful uh, for our partnership with Impact and we wanna ask your blessing on them today. We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit uh, through this ministry on campus and on uh, other campuses around Wisconsin. Uh, we pray for Keisha for her upcoming sabbatical. Would you give her rest and new vision as she takes this time away and, and allow her to do that in a way that's just free from anxiety, that she would be able to, to trust in you as the leaders carry the work on. Uh, and we pray for Imani and for the UW chapter. Would you continue to bless it? And we, we, we give you thanks for these new student leaders. We pray for the growth of all the students who participate. And, and we thank you especially for just the holistic vision of impact that desires to, to truly have an impact on the lives of these students in every area of their lives, uh, that you would be glorified and that they would be blessed. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you very much. Thank you really uh, for being here with us today. Uh, please join them downstairs after the service. And uh, it's a privilege for us to, to partner with them. I, uh, I wanna thank everyone also uh, who joined us last week uh, for our shared uh, service and, and picnic uh, that uh, Shannon gave uh, thanks for in his prayer uh, with Casa de Dios and, and Central Cristiano. I, I can't think uh, of a better way that we could have celebrated the day of Pentecost than to bring together a, a Pentecostal congregation, uh, an evangelical Bible church, and a liturgical reformed congregation <laughs> across lines of uh, language and culture and, and musical style. It was a beautiful experience of the diversity of the body of Christ. And something that happened last week that Mark. Uh, who came across our worship service, and he stayed for the whole service, and he came up afterward, and he said, uh, I've been away from the church for a long time, and I haven't been living as a Christian 
but I want to rededicate my life to Christ. And uh, he received prayer, and we connected him with uh, Pastor Miguel's church. Uh, and it was just a, a tremendous blessing uh, to see him there. The, the Lord was at work through this service in, in many different ways. So today, we're continuing in our series through Galatians, and I want to connect what we experienced last Sunday with what we've been learning about the gospel in Paul's letter. One thing that we've learned is that confusion about the gospel in the church often leads to racial and cultural division. Now remember, that's what we saw in chapter 2, with Peter separating from the Gentiles uh, because he was influenced by this faction uh, that insisted that the Gentiles had to follow Jewish cultural practices. But the gospel tells us that all people are accepted by grace through faith in Christ. As someone once said, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. When we lose sight of this message of grace, when we don't believe that Jesus is really sufficient, we begin to look to other things to give us a sense of worth or status, uh, a righteous standing before other people. And often, the things that we look to uh, are uh, distinctives of our own tribe, whether it's political or racial or cultural, we end up insisting that, that a good person will be more like us in some way. And we find something to stand on besides Christ. But when you focus on the gospel that says, no one is righteous, but God has done for us what we can't do for ourselves, then you can unite with other people across all sorts of barriers. This is why one sign of a church that gets the gospel of grace will be an unusual willingness to partner across lines of division in ways that are generous and open-handed and seeking the common good. So this is the gospel that we want to continue to investigate, and today I want to highlight uh, just three things that we can learn from this chapter of Galatians. We don't have a lot of time, so this is going to be brief, and it's a complex passage in some ways, so if you have a question about something that I don't address, you know, just ask me afterwards. But there are three things that I want to highlight here. First is the nature of the promises of God. Second is the need for the law. Why then the law? And third, the now of faith. What is true now today that we can believe? So three things, the nature of the promises, the need for the law, and the now of faith. Let's start with the nature of God's promises. At the heart of this letter, Paul's letter to the Galatians, is God first a debate really about the character of God? Is God first and foremost a rule maker and rule giver? Or is God first and foremost a promise maker and a promise keeper? Related to these two different visions of God are two different interpretations of the story of the Bible. Remember, remember Paul is, is writing this letter 
in response to false teachers who had come into the churches that he had planted in Galatia and modern Turkey. And these new teachers had begun to undermine the gospel message that Paul proclaimed. These opponents, the, the circumcision party, they're called, were telling the Galatians that Paul had done a fine job of introducing them to Jesus, but if they wanted to be serious Christians, they needed to follow the Jewish law and adopt Jewish practices, like being circumcised and keeping kosher. To support their views, they explained that God had made a covenant of circumcision with their forefather Abraham in Genesis 17, and later gave his people the Mosaic law at Mount Sinai, and they taught people, believe in Jesus, obey the law, and then you will be saved. But what Paul declared was, believe in Jesus, and you will be saved, and then obey the, the law, obey God out of love and gratitude for all that he has done for you. These are two different gospels. And in the, in the true gospel, God is first and foremost a promise maker and a promise keeper. The nature of God's promises that we see here in our text today are that they are free and they are certain. They are free because they are based on what God declares and gives, not on any human action. And they're certain because God's own fulfillment of his promises in the person and work of Jesus. If you go through the details of this text, I'm not going to do it now, but what you'll find is that Paul is always going back and forwards in history. He goes back to the beginning of God's relationship with Abraham in Genesis, before Genesis 17, uh, to stress that before there were any commands given to Abraham, hundreds of years before the law was given at Mount Sinai, God made promises to bless the nations through Abraham. Verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. But Paul also goes forward to the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ. He says Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham, to whom all the promises belong. He's playing with uh, the word offspring in Hebrew also can be either singular or plural. So it refers to all of Abraham's offspring, but also to the one offspring who fulfills all the promises, Jesus. So God's promises are free and certain. They're the ultimate gift. Paul says that the promises are like a will that has been ratified. It cannot be changed. These are promises that you can rely on. So the only question is, are you a recipient of the promises of salvation? And how do you know? Paul's opponents had a very simple answer to the question, a very attractive answer in some ways. How do you know whether the promises are for you? And they said, by keeping the law. Follow God's commands. Do good things. And you'll know that you have his promises. You see what this does. You can't really be sure that the promise is for you unless you prove it. Suddenly, it doesn't depend on God, but on you. 
And this leads to the, the kinds of problems that we've seen in this letter. Pride and self-righteousness and division. It's easy for Christians to have a similar mindset. Believing that you come into God's kingdom by grace, but you stay in by doing good works. In response, Paul says no. It's the promise of God received by faith. This brings us to our and keeps you in. This brings us to our, our second point today, the need for the law. If the promises of God are primary, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but all the way through, then why do we need the law at all? In our text, Paul gives two images to illustrate God's purpose for the law. First, in verses 22 and 23, Paul says that the law is like a prison. Second, in verses 24 and 25, he says that the law is like a teacher. Now, the word is translated here in the ESV as, as disciplinarian, but in Greek, it's the word pedagogue, uh, teacher. And these two images show that the law can be both good, but also insufficient. The, the moral commands and teachings of the Bible reveal how we should live, but they can't really do anything to really heal the world and make it right. They only show that there is a problem. But what God promised was a blessing of eternal life to renew and restore the world forever and human beings. So Paul says in verse 21, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. His point is, the law can't make you alive. The law shows you your guilt and how you've fallen short. It gives you a path to walk to do better. But on its own, it can't bring you the life you long for. We're talking about the Old Testament law, but what, what Paul says about it applies to any moral code, whether it's a religious law that you've inherited or whether it's your own personal morality that you've constructed. And, and let me explain this through an example from the classic novel Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. At the center of Anna Karenina is this woman, Anna, uh, who has everything a wealthy, privileged woman could want in 19th century Russia. She moves in the best circles. She attends great parties with friends. She has a husband who may not be the most attractive, but he's devoted to her. And she has a son whom she just adores. But she gives it all up for a passionate love affair with an exciting and handsome army officer named Vronsky. She decides that she's gonna live according to her own rules. In this case, the rule of romantic love. Have you heard of that rule before? Well, I just made it up. <laughs> the, the rule of romantic love. Now, the rule of romantic love says that if you have romantic feelings for someone, that your desire for them must take priority over any other commitments that you've made. So Anna and Vronsky are having this affair, 
But after it has been going on for some time, one day it begins to dawn on Anna that Vronsky is falling out of love uh, with her. And here's how Tolstoy describes her in this moment. And though she felt sure that his love for her was waning, there was nothing she could do. She could not in any way alter her relations to him. Only by love and by charm could she keep him. And so, only by being occupied during the day and taking morphine at night, could she stifle the fearful thought of what would be if he ceased to love her. You see, Anna was living according to a law as much as any religious person. That law told her that she must follow her feelings no matter what. And that law had made her a slave to Vronsky's love. If he loved her, she would live. If he ceased to love her, she would die. The irony is that the same thing that she thought would make her more fulfilled has in fact made her more fearful and more escapist. The love for which she was willing to sacrifice everything in her life is now crushing her. What I want to invite us to see today is that the Christian faith, if you really understand it, gives you a whole different way to live. A life of faith does not mean living according to religious rules or making up new rules for yourself. Your life no longer comes from your obedience or your disobedience. Instead, if you're a Christian, your life comes from trusting in the promise of what God has done for you in Jesus. This is why Paul says in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. It might sound, oh, we're no subject to a disciplinarian anymore. We can just do whatever we want. But he says at the same time, with him, a child of God. If you believe that, it will change your life. Now that faith has come. This is the now of faith. Now that faith has come, something has changed. What is it? When you believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to bless the world through Abraham, everything changes. You now know for certain that you are a child of God, not because of anything you've done to earn his affection, but only because you're united to his son, Jesus, by faith. What you've been trying to earn, God gives to you as a gift. And how can you be sure his promises are for you? As we've said, that the temptation in the Christian life is so often to look to our own righteousness, to justify our place in God's family, to point to the good things that we are doing. But Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus takes the judgment that you deserve and gives you the life that he deserves. In other words, if the law is like a prison 
as Paul describes it earlier. He opened the prison doors and offered himself in your place that you might go free. And the way to grow as a Christian is not to go back into the prison in order to prove that you're worthy of his sacrifice. The way to grow is by believing that he really has set you free and that God embraces you as his child. In faith, you trust that you are an heir according to the promise. Not because you've done anything to earn it, but because you belong to the true heir, Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God by nature, and when you trust in him, you become a son or a daughter of God by grace. You don't have to wait for some future inheritance. Now, today, in Christ, God gives you everything that your heart longs for. The assurance of his affection, a security that can never be taken away, a father who will never fail you or desert you, a savior who has given everything for you, and a hope that will not disappoint you because Jesus has been risen from the dead. When you believe that this is true, it means that you can stop looking for other things in this world to satisfy you. You can stop resting in the instability of your own efforts and instead rest in the righteousness of Christ. Next week, we'll talk more about what it means to live into this identity as God's sons and daughters. But today, remember the promise. Whatever your struggle or your doubt today, look to the one who is the promise maker and the promise keeper, and he will be faithful. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, I pray today that you would open our eyes to more of your grace and love, uh, to its abundance, to its power, to its goodness. Most of all, I thank you that you accept and love us, not because we deserve it at all, but simply because you are a loving Father who has revealed yourself to us in your Son. Uh, so today we trust in him, and we pray that you would make us more like him uh, in our love for each other and for our neighbors. And we pray this in his name. Amen.